Welcome to Money Making Conversations. It's the show that shares the secrets of success experienced firsthand by marketing and branding expert Rashawn McDonald. I will know. He's given me advice on many occasions, and in case you didn't notice, I'm not broke. You know he'll be interviewing celebrity CEOs, entrepreneurs, and industry decision makers. It's what he likes to do. It's what he likes to share. Now it's time to hear from my man, Rashawn McDonald. Money Making Conversations. Here we go. Welcome to Money Making Conversations. I am your host, Rashawn McDonald. It is time to stop reading other people's success stories. You hear me say that every week and start writing your own. And they always talk about gifts. They talk about passion. Well, leave with your gifts. And don't let your age, friends, family, or coworkers stop you from planning or living your dreams. My interviews include CEOs, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and people I like to call industry decision makers. My next guest is truly an industry decision maker. He's Dr. George T. French, Jr. In 2019, he became the fifth president of Clark Atlantic University, the largest United Negro College Fund member institution in the country, and the largest private private HBCU within the state of Georgia. During his tenure at Clark Atlanta University, President French has brought millions of dollars to the institution, increased corporate partnerships and sponsors, and has led the university through a worldwide pandemic, which we know is so important. Prior to his appointment, President French served for 14 years as the president of Miles College, making him one of the longest serving university presidents in the country. Dr. French recently made positive headlines when I was reading my Houston Chronicle, and he announced in that article, as president of Clark Atlanta University, that student account balances for the spring of 2020, summer 2020, fall 2020, spring 2021, and summer 2021 semesters, we will be brought to a zero balance. Please Welcome to Money Making Conversations, the president of Clark Atlanta University, Dr. George T. French Jr. How are you doing, sir? Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm privileged and honored to be with you this morning. Well, first of all, I had a lot to say because you're doing a lot of great things. But there's Thank always you. a journey to get to this conversation. And the conversation is that when I read a headline like that and I realized that in 2020, the pandemic hit. It limited uh, a lot of African-American students from taking ACTs and SATs to enroll in various, not only HBCUs, but any college across the country. When you hear about all these situations, how did this come about and what led up to the announcement that the zero balances for the dates I mentioned for students attending Clark Atlanta University? So, so what led up to it is, is, as we know, we've experienced worldwide pandemic, the first such pandemic since the influenza uh, flu of 1918. So it's been a century since the world dealt with pandemic. This generation has never dealt with pandemic. Mm -hmm. So what led up to it was the fact that we were on campus at Clark Atlanta University and, and we had to take transition from on ground to an online platform for 4,000 students within two weeks because people were dying worldwide. Mm -hmm. The, the COVID-19 was spreading at unprecedented rates. So we had to get our students back home, off of campus. We had to decentralize. We had to uh, uh, de-densify the campus. So we sent students back to 42 different cities. Wow. But as we were on the way home, we realized all of them would not be able to go online because all of them didn't have laptop computers at home. Mm -hmm. So what did we do? We went and we purchased 4,000. We spent $3 million to purchase 4,000 students, one for all of our graduate and undergraduate students. 
What else did we do? We we refunded tuition. We refunded uh, housing costs, prorated. Mm-hmm. We refunded mm-hmm. uh, dining, parking, everything. Mm-hmm. We reduced tuition by 10%. We did everything that we could to help our students. We even paid for airline tickets and bus fare for students to get back home because we realized the, the gravity of the situation. So fast forward to to now. Right. Now, five semesters later, our students are preparing to come back to school for the fall. However, 900 of them had outstanding balances. Mm-hmm. And the pandemic, as we know, was 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 uh, 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 devastating to our nation, not just to our students, but to black America. When we talk about uh, making money, right. the fact that 50 percent of all African-American businesses went out of business during pandemic. This is unprecedented. So our students were suffering, yet they were preparing to come back in the fall to the campus on ground, but they had balances. So what we decided to do was we decided to take $2 million and pay off student balances so that they could return to school in the fall. Students are, uh, I I must tell you, for the last two months, every day I've gotten emails and texts and calls wondering how we can help them to return to school in the fall. This was one of the solutions. Well, here's the the beauty of uh, what we're talking about, HBCUs. For some reason in 2020, corporate America discovered HBCUs, you know, with (laughs) massive donations and led by uh, uh, Mackenzie Scott who's delivered $4.1 billion, I believe, to various HBCUs across the country. But this happened in 2020, pandemic awareness. Why do you think that suddenly in 2020 that corporations started to acknowledge the quality of education that's being produced at HBCUs, Dr. French? And how do we move forward to continue that resonating within the corporate community as well as the general community overall for donations? Well, I think I think in actuality, we've been on the precipice of the relationship that we have with corporate America for some years now. Mm-hmm. I don't think it just occurred to corporate America. What actually happened, and I think you and I both have witnessed the fact that at one time it was a moral imperative. It was a moral imperative to hire African-Americans, to hire the graduates of our HBCUs. But empirically based data informed these corporations that their bottom lines would be increased should they diversify. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer a moral imperative, but it's a smart business decision to find the creme de la creme to come to the Atlanta University Center, which is the largest consortia of HBCUs in the nation. And you find the best and the brightest students there. So these corporations, yes, some of them gave because of of the tragedies of social injustice. But most of them now, my conversation is not talking about how they can give us a gift uh, to clear their conscience. What they're talking about now is how African-Americans are proficient in artificial intelligence and coding and how we, we catch on very quickly to any new environment. So it's a good business decision for those let me, corporations. Let me follow up well. there with what Dr. French is saying, who's the president of Clark Atlanta University. Uh, when it comes to the black community, HBCUs, I call HBCU is black excellence. You have roughly 107 historically black colleges and universities across the country that have produced within the black community 
community, 80% of the black judges. This is HBCUs. When he's talking about excellence, when he's talking about the corporations recognizing, 70% of the black dentists comes from HBCUs. 70% of the black doctors come from HBCUs. 50% of the black public school teachers. 50% of the black lawyers. 40% of the black engineers. 40% of black members of Congress. We're not just talking about uh, our vice president. Kamala Harris, 18% of the black Fortune 500 CEOs and 18% of CEOs in general come from HBCUs. And this is the whole purpose of this interview. When I saw that announcement by Dr. French, who is the president of Clark Atlanta University, renouncing these, like he said, roughly 900 students who were struggling to deal with the, the debt balance, and they rectified that. He rectified the situation when students had to go home by by getting laptops so they can continue their education. Because what we cannot do within any community, especially the African-American community, is limit our, our opportunities to be educated. How important is that, is that in general? I can say it. I'm a, I'm a novice. I'm on the outside. But you are an educator, Dr. French. Talk about education, the impact it has on our black community, and how it levels the playing fields for opportunities in general. Well, thank you, Sarah. And those statistics were, um, I mean, you are eminently correct on those statistics. We are the creators. HBCUs are the creators of the black middle class. That's, that's, that's essentially what we do. And we were proud that the United Negro College Fund, under the leadership of Michael Lomax and Rodriguez Murray, went to Washington. They led the effort amongst HBCUs to go to Washington to push for the CARES Act, to get the billions of dollars for the uh, HERF relief, which is Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund, which is the way that we're able to use and to fund some of our initiatives. Because the United Negro College Fund and the whole world understands that to receive a college education is just not self-edification, um, but it's the only way that you build generational wealth. What we see, what we see today is we need generational wealth, not just for one generation, but it has to be intergenerational as well. And the only way you do that, that we've seen empirically based data indicates that you do that with a college education. It indicates that the United Negro College Fund also did a study indicating that with a college degree, on average, African-Americans earn at least one million dollars more per their lifetime. And more importantly, they set the stage for those who would come behind them as the first generation college students graduate, you have other members at family reunion. Right. Tell us about college. Tell us about <laughs> university. And they get excited and they look forward to going to college and university. And it perpetuates our entire race, African-Americans. That's why we are doing so well, because we have embraced two things, in my opinion. We've embraced the church and we've embraced education. And these, this formula is the formula for success, I do believe, sir. Well, not only is the formula, but when you look at a school, a 150-year legacy, that's what we're talking about, Dr. French, you know, a legacy. We, that's powerful. And you're a powerful yes. man to be able to accept the responsibility of that. Not only 4,000 young people who are going to out and change the world, because that's what they're going to do. That's why I had to put those numbers out there, because so many people, like you said, are giving it money out of diversity. Please don't do that. 
Give money to us because we're producing cream de la cream, black excellence on a daily basis, not just at Clark Atlanta University, but all HBCUs. But we're doing this interview about Clark Atlanta University, a school that's on this, that the president decided, you know, some, I'm not going to handicap these young people, these 900 young people. I'm going to help these young people because in the end, it's all about passing forward. That's where God comes in. That's where partnership comes in. That's where friendship comes in. With that level of articulation, Dr. French, talk to us about how you feel and how the, the response is within the community. Because it's all about the community and all about trying to make a difference. And you're making a difference. Expound on that, sir. Well, it's, it's interesting that you've raised that point because my spirit has been so lifted during this process and seeing how, stu- how students are impacted, but more importantly, how the community is impacted. We are the first institution, uh, HBCU in the nation, to provide graduate degrees. Atlanta University is where W.E.B. Du Bois did his greatest work. And he didn't just stay within the, 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 the ivory tower of academy, but Du Bois was the advisor to the Department, United States Department of Labor, based on and predicated upon his studies of African-Americans in Atlanta, as well as Philadelphia. He was able to garner data, empirically based data, to indicate what it means for African-Americans to be in the mine, in the mines, what it means for them to be in the steel factories. However, what it also means for them when they transition to higher education, what a difference it makes. That was the very beginning of the social justice conversation. Yes. And I have to say to you, Sarah, that a lot of times we talk about social justice when, we, when we're marching in the streets and we're talking about jobs and fair housing, but it goes a little bit deeper. If you go to the emergency room today, you may not get the same level of, of treatment because the, the, the trials for um, uh, ac- the trials for these different medicines didn't always include African-Americans. Mm-hmm. So we have to make sure that we're in those trials because it's more than just about the dollar. It's also about the health of our communities. So, so social justice impacts us on so many different levels. And it's the job of the academy to stand on that wall and to say to the community, to, to society, this is what social justice equity actually looks like. And that's what we do on a daily basis by showing excellence. And anytime you want to see black excellence, you're right. You don't have to just come to Clark Atlanta University. You can go to over 100 institutions across this nation and witness black excellence every single day. I, I love it. I love it. I'm going to tell you something, Dr. Fritz, you're grinding just like me. And so that's why you were surprised at the reaction. You were just serving your purpose. You were yes, delivering sir. a cause and a need. And that's why when I saw the article, I immediately, immediately called my friend, Wendy Williams, over at WCLK. I said, I got to get him on the air. Can you give it? I want to put it on my show on Tuesday so we can continue. I'm going to feature you on my social media as my motivational Monday, talking about what we do. going to put in my newsletter that goes out to 200,000 subscribers. Wow. My whole thing is that it's about brand building. All I can do is tell your story. But your story that you're trying to create is new opportunities for students who just asking for asking. And I always tell this about a college degree. You cannot repo a college degree. So when you get it, they can't take it away. I want to just tell you, Dr. French, keep, keep 
doing what you're doing. I've taken up a little bit more of your time than I requested, but I appreciate the time you gave me and allowed me to tell your story and the story, incredible story of Clark Atlanta University. Thank you, sir. And we look forward to having you on our beautiful campus to speak directly to our students, because while we exercise black excellence, our students do best when they see black excellence. So I need to see you on my campus so that they can see black excellence in motion. Well, you know, you got my man, Kenny Leon, one of the top directors. You got my boy, Kenya Barris. I know him. My girl, That's Jackie right. Reed. So, you know, you're already rocking over there with some black excellence. So I would be more than happy to come on your campus on a regular basis to be able to showcase why I love what you're doing, how I respect black excellence, and the power of what you are being able to present at Clark Atlanta University is defined by the excellence that you've delivered by what I just talked about. Domination as far as in the community of what you guys deliver on a daily basis. Thank you, sir, for coming on Money Making Conversations. We will be right back with more Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Gospel rapper Lecrae has won multiple Grammy and Billboard awards, and he is one of my favorite Christian rappers. He stated that he is focusing on faith over religion. I asked him to explain. Sometimes I think you wear that face. You just put on those lenses that allow you to just keep going and pushing through without dealing with the problems and the trauma. And you allow successes to define you instead of you being successful out of a healthy and whole version of yourself. You're allowing the successes to convince you that you are healthy and whole. And I think that's a very different thing. And so for me, it was a matter of becoming a healthy whole individual and dealing with some historical traumas and recognizing that I was a slave, what other people wanted of me and not being who I was created to be. If you want to hear this full interview with Lecrae, visit MoneyMakingConversation.com. Keep winning. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. My guest today is a very old friend. His name is not in age, just an old friend, Ryan Smith. He joined ESPN in uh, February of 2017. He left me when I was still with Steve Harvey, just watching him on TV. I was just doing radio with him, this little old Steve Harvey morning show with him back in the day. <laughs> host of ESPN's Outside the Line and East. E60, as well as New York-based corresponding. He added anchoring Sports Center to his role in 2019. In addition to his role as a host, Smith reports on feature stories and investigative pieces while providing legal analysts across multiple ESPN platforms and ABC News. Before joining ABC News, Smith served as the nightly news anchor at CNN's Headline News. That's where we met. Where he, where he reported on a variety of stories, including the tragedy of Sandy Hook Elementary School and some of the most high-profile trials, including the Casey Anthony trial and George Zimmerman. As a legal analyst, he has offered perspective of many sports-related stories for ESPN, including recently the shift in NCAA policy on players earning money. He's here today to talk about that. And by the way, he's from Philadelphia and he's proud of it. Please welcome yeah. to Money Making Conversations, my man, Ryan Smith. How you doing, Ryan? <laughs> Good, Rusham. What's going on? How you doing, well, man? I'm doing great, man. I'm just watching a, a, a friend, you know, just see, you know, we all got that hustle. And uh, of trying to, and then you, and first of all, let me tell you that he ain't through. Uh, sitting up there, this, he's doing some amazing things, but his rise is still on the rise. And when I see where you're at and what you're trying to achieve, what's the goal for you, Ryan? What's the goal? You know, it's funny. I, when I first started in this industry, I always had this thing where every year I would say, I want to have this role. I want to have this job. I want to have this. I want to anchor this show. I, I want to lead this brand. Mm-hmm. 
And after a while, I just discovered, Rashawn, that it wasn't getting me happy. I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I, I felt like I was always chasing something. Mm-hmm. So the goal, actually, for me right now is to love what I do. Right. And, and I know that's cliche. And I know people are going to be like, oh, whatever, man. You would love, love to like run the 11 o'clock sports center. Actually, what I would love to do is be able to continue to anchor, which is my favorite thing in the world to do mm-hmm. work-wise, mm-hmm. and still have time to spend time with my boys, my family. I got two boys. They're seven years old, twins. Awesome. My wife. I, I like having a balanced life. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's not just about anchoring one show or doing one brand or making this amount of money. For me, it's can I continue to anchor shows that I love, that I'm interested in, and stuff that motivates me. And so right now, I'm kind of living my goal. But <laughs> but to be honest with you, I mean, for me, it, it's continue to do this work and continue to do it better and better every day. Well, you know, sports is really um – we see it transcending, you know, we're seeing the, the honesty. I remember when Kevin Love several years ago admitted he had an emotional uh, health crisis and everybody went, wow, it's pr- so proud of you to step out of your your your, your window, you know, your shell in that situation. Because people used to say, and then well, recently um, uh, Dak Prescott uh, spoke of his issues that he was having emotionally. And then I, we look at now what happened with Osaka when she pulled out of the French Open, and then we see what happens to Simone Biles. When you see as a reporter, there has to be a high level of sensitivity because you can't take anything personal or you can't judge anything. How has that changed your perspective, Ryan Smith, of reporting just in general, but it's more importantly on the platform of ESPN? Yeah, it's been really interesting. When Kevin Love came out with his statement and other folks like Dak Prescott, like you mentioned, came out with their uh, statements about taking care of their mental health, We recognized them, we heard them, but it never stopped them from doing their athletic competitions. Mm -hmm. Now we're seeing athletes saying, look, I I know this is the biggest stage in the world, but, uh, you know, at this time, it's not the right time for me to perform. Mm -hmm. That's something we haven't seen before. So I think for us, the important thing is, A, like you say, not judge and be sensitive. We are in a different time now. I know there are people out there who are saying, what, your mental health? Come on, you're at the Olympics, Simone Biles. You got to perform. But you know what? We are in a different generation. We are in a generation where I think, and I I give young people credit, where young people are willing to say, you know what? There might be another opportunity down the road. There might not be. But what's more important for me is that I perform when I feel mentally right to perform. Mm -hmm. And that's something we haven't seen before. I got to say, it's something that I have never seen. I mean, I can tell you many times when I played sports and I was younger, I was not in the right mind frame. I felt like it was all the pressure was getting to me and it was difficult, but I I felt like I had to do it. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that the younger generation, Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka and others are stepping up and saying, I don't have to do this if I don't feel right about doing it. Right. And I don't know, Rushan, if there's anything wrong with that. I, I think that's actually right. We assert that in our own lives. We tell our own children, don't be bullied into doing something. Don't don't if people tell you to do something, you don't want to do it. You say no. We tell that to our children. And yet on the biggest stage in the world, when they're feeling uncomfortable, we say, I'm sure some people out there are saying, you know what? No, go perform. Right. That's the antithesis of what we've been trying to establish in our own lives. Mm-hmm. So I say, if I'm able to do it in my own profession, in my own life, I need to give that same leeway. To, to athletes out there. And that's kind of how I approach it in reporting. I don't judge. I don't say anything about that. I acknowledge that it's different. But at the same time, I leave room for the explanation. Let's hear why. And also, 
let's be sensitive to why, understanding that everybody is different and everybody has their own perspective when it comes to mental health. Well, you know, the thing about it, with like you referenced when you when you were playing and you, you was uncomfortable, but then when you was uncomfortable, you didn't have to deal with social media. You didn't have to deal with right. the likes or the criticisms, and that's really the baggage. I always tell people social media really is your own personal press conference. You don't have to call a press conference. You just post. And because of that, you know, you have the cell phones where a video can be used. You can stream. And so that electronic leash. And so you can't really get away. You know, back in the day when I was growing up, you know, hey, I could just, I could, I, 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 was, I wasn't at home. Okay, when you call, that's not an excuse anymore. You know, then it went, oh, you, I text you. I didn't get your text. Okay, that's not an excuse anymore. And so now, if you Simone Biles and you and you stumble or you or you do a spin or you fall off the balance beam, she goes to the home. It's criticism, and some of it's just nasty. And then it's the the commercial endorsements of people that put you on a pedestal, all that. And then the highlight reels, whether they whether the instances or not, to go to go home and you realize that you can't watch TV, you can't watch the media because they have all have their base stories. So somewhere an athlete now is trapped in the media that also you know emotes their success, right? Yeah, but I will say this. And to your point, by the way, I was the last guy of all the people I knew to get a cell phone. Mm-hmm. I was the last guy to want to get <laughs> to be reached anywhere. My whole thing was when social media, cell phones, all that stuff blew up. That was the last thing I wanted to participate mm-hmm. in because I love my anonymity. Yes. I, I love being able to do my thing mm-hmm. and then disappear. Right, right. So this whole new generation of everybody putting their stuff out there all the time. I, I've just never really been in touch with that in the same way. But to your point. Here's the issue that I think a lot of athletes face. Mm-hmm. They want the adulation that comes with the success, but ultimately you are not always going to be successful. Right. And you have to be willing to accept the other side of it. Now, I'm not speaking to Naomi Osaka or Simone Biles directly, but what I'm saying is I'm fairly certain, at least in some place in, in in their minds, that they knew that criticism was going to come from making these moves. Mm -hmm. What I admire in them is that they're doing them anyway. Yes. Because that's hard. I mean, you talk about Simone Biles or Naomi Osaka, you know, millions of followers, people dissecting their every move, and yet still they're saying, you know what? I know the heat is going to come, but I'm still willing to stand up for what I believe is my mental health. And and I really encourage people to take a long-term view of this. And I promise you, I'm not trying to be PC, but let's just think about this. Right. Let's say that she performed in the Olympics and her mental health was really deteriorating in ways that we could never imagine. Mm -hmm. And let's say things went really poorly for her or in her mind went really poorly. Mm -hmm. The Olympics is over. We all move on. We do our thing. She's still in that space. Months later, she's still in that space. Years later, she's still in that space. And I think that's what we miss when we're so quick to hit Twitter and criticize. Naomi Osaka talked about suffering from depression, not from a week ago before Wimbledon, but for months, for ages, suffering from depression, just thinking about Mm -hmm. what it was like to face these questions. Mm -hmm. I think we don't think about that because we're so short term in our thinking. Mm -hmm. We're so like anxious to read the next tweet or see the next win that we don't think about maybe Simone Biles is making this decision because it's not about today or tomorrow or the Olympics, but it's about how this might affect her for years to come. And I have to tell you, I have spoken to many athletes over time. They talk about the different things that affect them. And some of the deepest conversations I've had with some of the top athletes out there, when they talk about what affects them, it's not 
you know, hey, it affected me for a month or two. And then I got back on the horse. Every athlete has that sense of you got to forget about the last play. You got to forget about that. But I've spoken to a ton of athletes who don't, who, who are dogged by that yes. play that happened two years ago, that miscatch in the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. that thing they didn't do in high school. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't think people think enough about the long-term effects of what can happen. And so I give them credit for, in the face of all the criticism they might face, still stepping up and saying, you know what? You guys aren't going to think about how this might affect me today, tomorrow, next year, the year after, but I'm thinking about it and I'm stepping up for myself. Well, I I, I 100% agree with that because of the fact that, you know, like I shared off air, my daughter, you know, she was a tennis phenom and uh, I could just tell, you know, the, the, the game and her effort was starting to differ. You know, our expectations and the effort yeah. she wanted to do was that, okay, she had been hitting the ball since she was six years old. When she was at 16, you know, she was definitely a pro ready. Then she broke her foot and then she came back and it was a shoulder. And then it was like an injury after injury. And then she kept coming back. And it was like, every time she came back, it was like, you can see a deterioration, mm. a mental and physical deterioration. And so a lot of yeah. people don't put that in perspective, the, the comeback. But more importantly, what we take away from this, and we're going to move on to other stories because you know, your career is, a, is something I want to talk about, how you were able to transition from the George Zimmerman's to the Simone Biles stories so seamlessly. And so especially your legal analyst side of it is that now when you look at young athletes, the part that really affects me the most now is the young athletes who are now getting paid in the NCAA because of the fact that now, you know, the expectations are differently now. You know, like they said, the young quarterback for the Alabama, he has almost a million dollars endorsement. Now I'm pretty sure that's not just one million. He might have like 10 different people who have given him money. So that's like 10 different people able to pull him or make demands on him and have expectations if he doesn't throw a touchdown, if he throws an interception. And so that whole part of the of the wire, because when you look at these high-profile people, they do have, you know, people, psych, you know, uh, coaches who are motivating there, and they're brought on board to make sure they, they psych is together, they understand why they fail and why they achieve. Talk about that perspective, Ryan, when you see these young 18, 16-year-old players getting $10,000, $100,000 and being turned around, but the expectations come with a penalty sometimes. Oh, it's going to be a challenge to see. And we got to see how it goes because name, image, and likeness has just started giving the athletes the ability to get this. But Rashawn, I start from this place. The NCAA is a billion-dollar industry, right. multi-billion-dollar industry. For years, everybody has been taking home the money except the people on the field. Mostly black and brown folks. Yes. So to me, the fact that athletes are now able to get money to make these deals is a win, a huge win, because we have to have that kind of system. We, we cannot simply say, oh, amateurism dictates that this guy can go run into a wall. He has to prove himself every single year because a lot of people don't know when you get a four year full ride, it's not a full year, no, four year full ride. Every single year, they got to re-up that ride. Mm-hmm. So if you didn't perform that first year, even though you're the best athlete in your state, they could be like, we're taking your scholarship away. Oh, you don't have enough money to go to the school? Nah, that's too bad. See you later. Doesn't matter what happens to you. That has been the life for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of athletes. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they're able to collect and capitalize on their talent now, mm-hmm. I think young people, I think is a great thing. Now you talk about the idea of the pressure they face because of that. I think you're right. 
And I think it behooves them. And I think you're probably going to see industries popping up of folks who are going to manage those athletes mm-hmm. and manage those folks mm-hmm. to make sure that the pressure isn't too great. When we met, uh, sports weren't even part of our conversation. You know, was, I was still business <laughs> manager, Steve Harvey. We had the very highly, still very successful Steve Harvey morning show. And uh, we both based in Atlanta. Yeah. He was in Atlanta. And I was always uh, get him on the show to talk about cases, cases like the Casey Anthony story from a legal perspective, from his perspective, George Zimmerman's story that we know that went down with Trayvon Martin and that whole trial that this that, that, that took control of the country and, and launched Benjamin Crump into his uh, rarefied uh, civil rights era that he is in today. But I never saw this coming. I never saw the ESPN anchor. I never saw the sports side of you coming out. Talk about where you were, were at then, and, and then we're going to talk mm-hmm. about transitioning, because then I will see you pop up on ESPN doing legal analyst work. So, But let's talk about that journey in Atlanta when you and I first met, the perspective and the mindset you had to have versus the mindset that you have now as a sports anchor and an expert on sports, because you are an expert on sports because you anchor sports. Yeah, I, I, I got to tell you. So, so first, I, I, to your question, I want to say when I when you and I met in Atlanta, I had basically just gotten into TV. Mm-hmm. I, I was a lawyer, and around 2010, 2011, I just decided I kind of hit a wall with as far as I wanted to go practicing law. Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting in television because I did guest spots here and there. Mm-hmm. Just uh, first, I made a reel. I had a producer friend who was like, you got to make a reel if you want to get into television. <laughs> I was just kind of thinking, maybe I'll do something. So I went out, I made a reel on the streets of New York, just interviewing random people. I interviewed a film director, a couple other folks. Somebody saw me on BET. Somebody saw my reel and they put me on a show called My Two Cents. I hosted that for a while. Then they, it was basically a show about the black community uh, curated by three other, me and three other people. And then uh, I ended up doing a Sharp Talk, which was Al Sharpton's talk show on TV One. Somebody on CNN saw me, went from there, went to other networks, and then finally Court TV brought me on to be an anchor uh, for their new brand that they were launching at HLN. But Rashawn, I got to actually say thank you to you because early on when I started doing HLN, I was still learning how to build beyond my job. And you noticed me on HLN and Core TV talking about these cases. And you brought me onto the Steve Harvey show. And I got to tell you, that did wonders, not only for my ability to communicate with right. people, mm-hmm. but for getting to know a new audience mm-hmm. and for, for getting people to trust me in these areas of cases. Mm-hmm. Because Steve Harvey's audience was so big and it was so diverse. Mm-hmm. And, and the talent on the Steve Harvey show was so willing to engage with me on the show. It taught me that I didn't have to just be restricted by what I was doing in television. I could do other things. I could jump on Steve Harvey's show. I could jump on all these other shows. And it gave me the level of confidence that I didn't have before that moment. So I just I just wanted to step out and say thank you for that. Thank because you. you kept putting me on. Yes. Um, in a way that like shocked me so much <laughs> and made me so happy. But at the same time, got me out of this mindset of just television. I would tell you, anybody, because when I look at somebody like Ryan, he's talented, plus he's a grinder. I say, there's a lot of people want to do what he do. A lot of people don't uh, answer the call. Oh, I'm tired. Oh, uh, uh, tomorrow? Because I call him at the last minute sometimes. I see it on oh, TV. Yeah. I say, Monica, call call Ryan. I, 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 see if he can do the show tomorrow. 
And then I was asking him to come into an environment where I had comedians. Uh, and he didn't, and, and honestly, he had to trust me too because of the fact that he was a he was a, a lawyer. He was on a uh, he was talking serious stories, and sometimes Steve Harvey or nephew Tommy would bend a question to him that he had to stay focused on. He had to see the story true, and so that's what I respected the most about it. You understood the balance of what I was trying to do. You understood entertainment, but you also and understood the the storytelling of telling the story correctly. That was a gift that you have, my friend, and it shows uh, up. Uh, thank you. It shows up on TV every time I watch you. It's a it's a nice humbleness in your reporting, and um, we was on radio back then. Now you're on TV, so nobody saw us back then. You just just heard your voice, just heard your articulation, <laughs> and now. I'm just seeing you on TV, it's still, it's still watching the sports side of you. You know, you come from a Philadelphia market, which is like crazy about sports. It's so opinionated, so in your face. It's like, how do you, how do you, you know, you Philadelphia just had a, I can say, disastrous basketball season. You, the baseball team still frustrates <laughs> you. They got rid of the quarterback that they thought was going to be the quarterback of the future. We don't know if Jalen Hurts is a quarterback. Talk to us about. I'm so proud to be from Philadelphia. How proud are you in football, basketball, and baseball? <laughs> I'm always proud. <laughs> no, I'm not. Let me th- let me tell everybody the key to being a Philadelphia sports fan and why everything you said doesn't even make me angry. <laughs> we expect we expect to be bad. We expect. It. Wow. If good things happen, mm-hmm. we're elated because we always thought we were going to lose. It's like I, I got to tell you this funny story. Like a friend of mine called me after we won the Super Bowl. Uh, a couple years back. And he was like, man, you finally did it. We've been ripping off Philly all this time. You finally won the Super Bowl. What do you think? I'm like, man, I don't know. Can we do this again next year? It's like, that's the Philly <laughs> fans mentality. It's like, we can't accept anything for being real in terms of success because we've had so much failure. Right. I, and I hate that I'm that way. And it's like, I got, I have two young kids now. And they're Eagles fans. And I try to tell them, like, no, you got to be positive about your team. They're like, well, then, Daddy, why do you always think they're going to lose? And I'm like, well, don't listen to me. Just focus on just, just. Let me ask, let me ask you, like, Ryan. Since I, I got a sports expert and a Philadelphia fan. You see Ben Simmons. You see Giannis, who had who went to that line despite the booze. He went to that line, and he, and he took the shots. Can yeah. Ben Simmons... Make that transition. Yeah, let me tell you. So so the, the, this is what we all kind of feel about Ben Simmons. We think that the first couple years in Philly, because he was such a great talent and because he could do so many things well, the coaching staff there and the management there didn't push him to go beyond what he was good at. Mm-hmm. And so the demands, what you got to say to a player is, look, you got to shoot in this game. You're not going to shoot. You're going to sit on the bench. You're the superstar, great. You made the all-star team, great. But you're not shooting, you're on the bench. Mm -hmm. Oh, he didn't take a shot this game? Let's put him in in the second quarter. Like, you got to teach him that way. He gets mad, he sulks, whatever. Dude's under contract. Where's he going to go? So it's like, you got to treat him like that. And that didn't happen in Philly. So years and years and years go by, and that didn't happen coming into this season. So he learned this mentality of being good at what he was good at, but not wanting to try and not wanting to work at what he wasn't good right. at, mm-hmm. despite the fact that he knew that would hamper him in the playoffs. 
So once we got into the playoffs and the heat was turned up and people started hacking them, and I give I give the Wizards credit because they came up with the system of let's hack them, and right. let's send them to the line. Mm-hmm. Once he couldn't make the shot, his mental broke down, mm-hmm. and he said, uh, 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 "I can't do this, so I'm going to avoid it at all costs." Right now, I'm not driving to the basket because I don't want to get fouled. This is a really important lesson for all your listeners and anybody who's watching today. And we're talking about getting into the TV business and all of this because I've learned this lesson firsthand. When I started in this business, and Rashawn, I'm sure you have the same experience. There was a lot that I wasn't good at. Yes. A lot. Yes. But the thing is, you got to go on air and make the mistakes. Mm-hmm. I used to have a YouTube channel where people could look me up and see all the mistakes I made, <laughs> including not knowing where the camera was, not knowing what show I was on. I mean, it's like you got to go on and make these mistakes mm-hmm. in order to get better. Mm-hmm. If you're not willing to make the mistakes in terms in front of everyone, if you're not willing to ask the stupid questions, if you're not willing to extend in ways that you haven't extended before, you don't get better and you remain the same exact talent. And I got to tell you, Sean, I've known people in this industry. It's like they're playing the same old song every single day. And Absolutely. I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying, how can you expect to get further and be better unless you're extending beyond your comfort zone? So that's the big problem with Ben Simmons. And we can relate it to what we're talking about right now. It's like anybody watching who wants to get into anything or wants to be like you, mm-hmm. be a top of their industry, you didn't get there without making mistakes. That's true. Public mistakes. Yes. yes. Pub- mistakes other people can see. And you grew from them and you got better from them. And that's what I hope Ben Simmons, I don't think we should trade him. I think we should keep him. I think we should give him another chance. I think he's so good at the things he's good at. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, this is crunch time summer, and he's got to realize it's a life lesson time. Mm -hmm. Am I willing to make the mistakes and be better and look foolish in front of a lot of people Mm -hmm. at the things I'm bad at in order to be great? If he's, I'll give him another year with that. If he's willing to try that, awesome. He's going to be an amazing talent, maybe one of the best ever. If he's not he's always going to be who he is. Cool. Uh, my last question is this: just a, just a part about it that I love about you, that amazes me about you, is this. Okay, being a sports analyst, you know, uh, anchor, you know, you the monitor feeds you the information. Okay, and then you come uh-huh. on there, then you come on there, and then you're an analyst from a legal perspective, which is which 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 is also I think even more difficult. Because you're sharing facts and you're sharing definitive moments. Like, if you say somebody missed a free throw, we see it. When you, when you come down as a legal analyst and they're asking you your perspective, the journey, the consequences, how are you able to shift those two gears comfortably like that, Ryan Smith? Oh, man, it's hard. <laughs> I tell you, it's hard. And let me tell you, uh, it, it's you and I met when I was covering Casey Anthony and Jody Arias yes. and those kinds of trials. And I got to tell you, it's really funny to say this, the the anger and the venom you get for talking about a legal issue in sports was 10 times greater than anything I ever experienced talking about Casey Anthony, Jody Arias, George Zimmerman, or any of those cases. Mm -hmm. It's just the intensity. Like, I remember I covered the Ezekiel Elliott uh, story when he was was facing some domestic violence issues and the NFL was suspending him. Cowboy fans were all over every word I said. And it was like, I'm just trying to report the facts. Yes. I'm just trying to tell you how the analysis, they don't care. What You're anti-cowboy. I hear you're from Philly. You're trying to sink my boy. Like, so that, that, that makes you even have to have a higher standard of I got to get everything right. I can't make any mistakes. <laughs> so you ask how I make the transition. 
to me, it's almost different sides of your brain. So you're right. When you're anchoring, a lot of times you've got prompter and you're ad-libbing too. But I got to tell you, I'm going to come back to you again. Being on Steve Harvey, having a flex with being like getting into working with comedians, but also giving analysis. It taught me flexibility. Mm -hmm. Being on HLN and CNN, a lot of times you're ad-libbing in the field. It taught me that sometimes you're reading the prompter, but then also sometimes you have to be able to give coherent thoughts quickly. And so for me, it's almost about separating different sides of your brain. One is I'm reading, I'm telling the news, which is your anchoring. But the other side is when you're doing legal analysis, when you're doing legal analysis, the key for me, Rashawn, research, research, research before I even show up on air. So my whole job is I got to know the issue back and forth, left and right, be ready for any question. And sometimes I tell them, don't even tell me the question. I, I just put the onus on myself to know as much as I can. Then when they ask the question, the first job I have to the viewer is whatever is complicated, I got to make it simple. Yes. I got to start out with a way to take whatever's most complicated about this issue. Okay, here's what Deshaun Watson might be facing. Make it simple. Give me one statement right up front, just the crux of it, and then go into the analysis. To me, if I know my material well, I can boil it down and give it to you in 30 seconds to a minute the most important facts. And I can only do one or two things. I can't try to jump on 17 different things. And that's the key. The key is like taking that complicated stuff and making it simple. Research, do the work. And then when I'm giving the presentation, know my audience. If my audience is SportsCenter, I know the time frame that they've got to listen to me talk about a legal issue. Each question is like 40 seconds. Right. What can I give them that's powerful about this case? that is different in terms of the analysis. It's something they didn't know in 40 seconds. And how can I do it as simply as possible using the easiest possible words? That's the challenge. And so the way I do it is I just think about how we're talking right now. We're just having a normal conversation. Well, Ryan, um, I understand you, my friend. I'm glad we took time to talk. Uh, again, your family. And so we'll talk again in the fall. But again, I'm so Love proud to. of you. I'm, I'm so absolutely proud of you, man. And uh, when I get up to New York, we, 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 we'll connect. But again, in Bristol, we'll connect. But again, uh, keep winning, man, and don't change. And thank you for coming on Money Making Conversations. We will be right back with more Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations, Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Lindsay Davis is currently an anchor for ABC News Live Prime and Weekend World's News Tonight on Sundays. We talked about the difference between news and opinionated journalism. It's always about the facts. I think that it's also about knowing what you don't know. And so I think that when you don't have a lot of variation, a lot of variety of perspectives and lenses and experiences at the proverbial table, then you're missing some of the nuance to the story, right? And some of the relevant facts get thrown aside. I don't think that I'm coloring it if with anything, except that I do come with the, the perspective and the experience of, of being a black woman in America. And so I think that I may have certain questions that I'm going to ask or that I'm going to lean into based on my own experience. If you want to hear this full interview with Lindsay Davis, visit MoneyMakingConversation.com. Keep winning. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. My next guest is Kenneth Farid. He's a professional basketball player. 
something I could never do. I always dreamed of being in the league, but all I can do is watch being in the league. He with the Denver Nuggets, Brooklyn Nets, Houston Rockets from a span of eight years, from 2011 to 2019. He also spent time in China. We'll talk about that in part of his interview. Serial entrepreneurship is his this is his foundation. I like to talk about he's the founder of the Kenneth Fareed Hat Foundation, which stands for Humble, Appreciative, and Thankful. Kenneth is a video gamer. He stated, I got into gaming because of my dad and, weirdly enough, because of my mom. My mom and dad are both Xbox gamers. He's pretty good at it because at Fortnite and the charitable foundation, he was able to win $250,000 in prize money, which had to be used for a charitable purpose. He finished second and got $250,000, which launched his foundation, the Humble, Appreciative, and Thankful Foundation, which stands for HAT. Kenneth is definitely more than an athlete, like I teased him about earlier, because I saw him in the body issue with ESPN. <laughs> I guess he showed a little bit more of his athleticism, okay? Uh... Please welcome to the <laughs> conversation, my man, Kenneth Fareed. How you doing, Kenneth? Oh, uh, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to be here. Uh, this is a great opportunity for me. I just as a person and as a man and to be up here with, I mean, no other than Rashawn. I mean, this, this is love right here. Well, it is love because, uh, you know, I always like to bring individuals on like you because you can get stereotyped. And, and uh, you know, and when I say stereotype, you can be a stereotype for being a black man. You can be a stereotype for being a tall black man. You can be a stereotype being an athlete, which can come into play about your intelligence. Come to, That's all you can do. How do you deal with, I mentioned several. I've been a black man. I've mentioned being a tall person. I've been being an athlete. Which one do you want to comment first being stereotyped? Because there's three of them. I know you get stereotyped on. Well... It's only because, of course, you know, my persona of my hair mm-hmm. goes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, people assume I is, hey, you're tall, you're you're also black, like, <laughs> to, to be honest. Like, you're tall, you're black, you're 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 you got this athletic build about you and you're handsome. So I I'm assuming you you play basketball or football. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's pretty much um the stereotype been my whole life, man. For me, I've been dealing with that, and I just take it with a grain of salt. Sometimes I like to play little games with people like, oh, no, nah, I'm not him. I'm act- I actually play lacrosse. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> nah, like I'm, I'm not that guy. Mm-hmm. I, actually, I actually play um, soccer. You know, I'm a goalie for um, Manchester United. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I just like to mess with people sometimes. But at the same token, it's a blessing and a curse. You know, um, you God put you on this earth and gave you these blessings, and mm-hmm. you either – you either use them to your advantage or you take it as, oh, why me? Why me? And I've never been a person who say, why me? I always say, try me. Right. You know, it's really interesting because of the fact that, you know, your athleticism, your build force you in a direction. And in other words, I, would, I apologize. I won't use the word force, but it tends to push you in a direction of expectations. You know, like, you know, when you when you're a smart person, intelligence isn't 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 written on your face, isn't written in your abs, isn't written in your height. It's just you have to show people that you're intelligent. Do you feel that because of your build that you you have to show people that you're more than an athlete, that you can do more, that you're capable of achieving things beyond the basketball court? Yeah, 100 percent. Um, But one thing my parents uh, was blessed to I was blessed to, I guess reciprocate when they was telling me back in the day because right. they told me a lot so <laughs> it was one thing they always said to use what you got to your advantage mm-hmm. and and I always wondered what they mean by that when I was younger but as I got older and grew into 
the man I am today. I just understood it more and more. And mm -hmm. I'm 31 today. Uh, my parents used to, like I said, I was younger. They told me a lot. But now that I'm 31 and I understood what they meant, mm -hmm. hey, I have a chance here just because I'm tall and because I'm black and people see my athleticism and all that stuff to use that to my advantage. So I went to Moorhead State. Yeah, everybody expected me not even make it to the NBA, mm -hmm. but I used it to my advantage. I said, hey, I'm here. I might as well keep going, graduate, mm -hmm. get my education, show other people and my family, not just like I didn't really care about the outside world in the sense that the, the public thought about me. Mm -hmm. I only cared about my family and what they thought. And it was, hey, I want to show my family. And I have an 11-year-old now. I had her in my junior year in college. Her mm -hmm. name's Kyra mm -hmm. um, Faree. Mm -hmm. I wanted to show her, hey, just because daddy is in the NBA, mm -hmm. he doesn't mean you can't graduate, get your degree, become that that pillar of foundation from your family, from not just a financial aspect, but a mental aspect. Because right. you have to be intelligent with the money. You right. can't just have it and go, oh, okay, I got money. Right. Let me just spend it foolishly. Oh, get this person a house, get this person a car, all this stuff. No, you got to understand that, hey, that wealth lasts you for that amount of time right then and there. You're making that much money because you're because of your talents and athleticism. But what are you going to do after? Right, right. But, you know, it's interesting, Kenneth, because, you know, I've been fortunate in my life, you know, because when you're in the entertainment, it's kind of like athleticism. Income can come in, 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 in large amounts. And sometimes you don't know what to do with that large amount. And sometimes it comes like, oh, I just get this. You know, I just lease this, you know. Yeah. And But you don't think anything of it because guess what? You're able to buy it. You're able to purchase. You're able to live that lifestyle. But then, like you said earlier in your conversation, it's about longevity because you're not going to play forever. And that big check needs to needs to uh, go down the line at least 20, 30 years. That's the process, you know. But you're a young guy. You're 31 now. Now, this is where athleticism and then – longevity comes into play. Because I know when I was 18, 30 was a long way away. 40, I couldn't even imagine 40. 50? Come on, dude. Really? We're talking about 50? <laughs> so when, when, when did the process of being 31 become a reality to you? Um, It just became a reality. Uh, this, I mean, this COVID pandemic hit. Right. You know, right. Um, mm -hmm. for me, I was in my 20s in the NBA enjoying life, having fun by the same token, just making a little smart investments here and there. Like right. my Manimal Elite, that's what I'm wearing right now in mm -hmm. the shirt. Mm -hmm. uh, my AU team made an investment in that. And that's through the, like you said earlier, Kennefree Hat Foundation. So it was, it was a blessing to be able to have that on my, I guess, a patch on my shoulder. Like, hey, this is something I've done. This is something I've built. And now, I guess, uh I believe it's nine years later. Yeah, nine years wow. later, about to be 10 years next mm -hmm. summer. Mm -hmm. Nine years later, I still have it up and running. Every The kids are done a tremendous job of promoting the brand, mm -hmm. being part of the brand, and really understanding what the brand means. And that's just being a hat, being a hat, humble, appreciative, and thankful. Mm -hmm. And that's my biggest, I guess, my biggest chip on my shoulder. I've always been humble, appreciative, and thankful for anything in my really? life. Really, really, really kidding. You've been humble. You've been humble. Now, I, I, I can, I gotta stop you now. I, if anybody, just to start, just, just Google the body issue, okay? See, that's why I gotta stop him on his humble talk. See, I know for a fact. 
Oh, man. I, I know for a fact. See, I wasn't even going to go there, but he keeps throwing out the word humble. Well, you know I'm humble. I'm humble. I'm humble. Uh, uh, so how does that, because I'm just having fun with you, Kenneth, because you, you, I love you to death, man. You, we, we, we're talking, but I, well, I got to be able to slide this into the conversation because you did it. You did it. I didn't, I didn't I force did. you to do it. Nobody told you, hey, man, you want to be naked and then uh, have some people put some uh, hide a little basketball oh, on certain parts of your body and you jump up and down and we will put it in the magazine. How, how did that sound? Was that a hard pitch, Kenneth? Or was that a pitch that you just, oh, I, I got this covered. Or you saw earlier editions and you go, man, why they ain't picked me yet? How Talk about that whole journey there, Kenneth. Because, see, I know you did some again. You're in the NBA, something I can never do. You in uh-huh. the body issue, again, something I can never do. But talk about your humbleness in doing the body issue of ESPN. <laughs> okay. Well, it was, I guess it's not one of the, I guess I can't, I, I, I'm so confused right now. It's hard. It's hard to say, you know. Uh, I went out there. It was funny because my oh, my rookie year in the league, basically, mm-hmm. I saw the body issue and I saw ESPN, I saw the SB's awards and I saw all that beautiful stuff. And I said, hey, that's the body issue. And whoa, these people are really naked. I love to be naked. I love to be free. I want to do this. Like, I, it looks like art. So right, I right, didn't right. think of it as, oh, okay, yo, you got uh-huh. to be naked and you about to be basically showing all your stuff off. I yeah. thought maybe you be like naked, but you you're covered in certain areas. Right, 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 right. But no, you just free. And <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. I'm ready. Hey, I'm here. I'm gonna do this. I'm not gonna be afraid. Mm-hmm. And it was the second year. Um they basically said, hey you we'll we'll love to have you. Um there's a lot of other players that's gonna be in it. Right. But all you got to do, all you have to do is just play, play in the playoffs. Right. Like, make have your team make the playoffs. And that mm-hmm. was my second year in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, well, mm-hmm. 100%, we're going to do that. <laughs> uh, I want to make sure that I'm a, mm-hmm. whatever I got to do. And it was just so happened we made the playoffs. Mm-hmm. We was the third seed. And we lost to the Warriors that year. But I guess I, I made a impact and the image for myself for the rest of my life. Well, you you did, Kenneth Fareed, you know, uh, but it's in a good way because it's part of your brand, you know, because, you know, Lord knows, you know, you, you was in your second year. So I know the players on the court gave you a hard time, a fun hard time yeah. out there when they were guarding you and all that stuff and warm-ups and all that stuff. So I know they've taken care of you. But what I love about you, man, is that there is a position that people do in life where they stop themselves. They say they don't want to do something. They worry about what people think. And they and it's but it's all part of of a brand build, you know. That's part of your personality. Like you said, you know, you're tall, you're black, you're hairstyle, you're a good looking guy. So that's part of being a I, I I think it's just like being a model. You know, you are you you can be a model, you know, and that, that that's no doubt in my mind. But that's that's physical. Thank you know, you. Thank you, you. <laughs> you know, the thing about being physical, there's always a time limit on being physical. And so that's where we sit right now, you know, because of COVID and you went over to China and you and uh, to extend your basketball career. Because guess what? They write nice checks over in China, by the way, y'all. Okay. <laughs> and uh and so and so uh you now you're back home right now. What is it from a physical standpoint? Do you stand with your career? I know you still stand in shape. Is it stand in shape to continue a basketball career or you're ready to move on? Um, 
I'm staying in shape because I want to get back into the NBA. Honestly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pushing myself and mm-hmm. doing things that pretty much got me there and just staying focused, locked in, not letting the outside distractions. Mm-hmm. Um, I had fun in my 20s pretty much, and it was it was nice, you know. I right. enjoyed it. Me going over to China was also a blessing. Um, most people wouldn't see it as that because of the fact that it did kind of stop me from going to the NBA with the bubble and everything. It kind of halted me from that decision, even though I got out of it early. But COVID protocols and the way they were setting up things, they just mm-hmm. wasn't letting FIBA players in. Mm-hmm. So I just respected that and had to respect it. And I just put my ax pretty much to the ground and showed everybody why they called me Manimal and why everybody say, hey, this kid never stopped working. He's a worker. He's he's this, he's that. Uh, he give it his all every time he step on the court. And that's truly who I am. And I just wanted to show everybody that and remind everybody that. And slowly but surely, it, people are going to see it. <laughs> people are going to see it. Well, I, I have no doubt about it, but you've always had a life where, you know, you weren't the five-star athlete coming out of high school. You know, you Moorhead State, you finished your career as an all-time rebounder, broke, I think, Tim Duncan's record, all-time rebounds. And so, but uh, along with that, it's like, you don't let what people think. And I guess that's, that's the core of my interview with you, Kenneth, because, you know, not letting people put you in a box, letting, letting people limit you based on your capabilities. What drives you? Is, is, is the, what was instilled in you by your parents that drives you or just a natural level of competition that drives you? It's, it's honestly both. Um, my, father would, my father would say when I was younger, I would do things like he'd do things in the house with me and he saw me doing it in the house with me and I just do it listen listen to him and pay attention and I'll probably get frustrated like oh, I don't feel like doing this with you every day right but it was my it was my dad and mm-hmm. at the same token it would translate to hey my cousins will come over and I would instantly tell them hey we waking up in the morning, we're going to work out. <laughs> yeah. Hey, when you get up in the morning, I don't want to hear you complaining about, like, why we getting up this early? Like, we're working. Mm-hmm. And then it turned to my father just know, knew every time around my cousin, yo, come on, push. I was pushing my cousins just as much as my father would say, hey, you got it. You got this, son. Just give it your best. Mm-hmm. But it would, it was never, my father was never as a, forcing me to do it. Right. He was always telling me, hey, son, I'm telling you to do this, to work out, keep your body in shape, because just you need it for life. Right. It's not because, hey, you want to be this superstar basketball player, this and a third. No, you need to just have your body in shape and ready for whatever for life. Right. And your mind, it's going to help your body, your body and mind will help each other. If you work your body and you work your mind, they're going to come hand in hand so you can think you can think on a go. It's going to help you for basketball later. You want to be an NBA player. That's what you keep telling me. Mm-hmm. So you got to sharp, not just your body, you have to sharpen your mind. So I would wake up with my cousins when they was there, tell them, come on, let's work out. I'm all <laughs> hype. My father didn't really have to bring the energy. Then afterwards, I'm like, hey, I got to do crossword puzzles. But it wasn't crossword puzzles like your typical, hey, you know, kids get to find right, the word right. and this mm-hmm. and the third. No, I had to look at the crossword, look at the words on the side and read them. 
right. read the words and know how to spell the words. Mm-hmm. Then know the meaning and definition of the word. Then put the same words in a sentence. Right. <laughs> that drove me to go, you know what? When I got to college, I want to do speech communications. Absolutely. You know, the interesting thing about, we hear that a lot. I, like you at the beginning of the interview, I said, I wanted to be an MBA. And then, of course, what? And you, you, you I want to say this real clean because this is a compliment to individuals who I encounter like you, who are living the dream that we watch on television. We admire the accomplishments. There's a limited roster space. There are guys in the G League who are trying to get in there. There are guys who are not in the G League trying to get in there. What made you or what enabled you to reach your dream of being in, able to play in the NBA, Kenneth Fareed? Um, the motivation of, like I said, my parents, honestly, my dad, him pushing himself, going to the way he, we lived in, he lived in Jersey City, mm-hmm. but every day from Monday to Friday, he worked for the union mm-hmm. in New York. He would catch the train, wake up dumb early in the morning just to catch the train to go all the way to New York to be at work at eight o'clock in the morning. Wow. And we'll work from eight o'clock all the way to, uh, I don't know, like five sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, six, but we working, doing painting jobs for the buildings that they was constructing. He help hang sheetrock and do all that stuff to uh-huh. paint. It was, but he did good construction work. His main thing was painting, but he uh-huh. learned the construction part of it. Right. In order to make sure he did was able to build other things later in life and uh-huh. handle other things at his own house that he owned uh-huh. at the time. So it was just amazing to watch him do that. Then my mom, uh. Like she just been a battle in my whole life. Right. She she got lupus when I was really young. And ever since then, it's been like a fight for her right. to survive and mm-hmm. just see me grow into the man I am today. And I've always said, hey, every rebound that I get in my life, I'm hoping and praying that it just goes towards my mom another day towards her life. That's it. Just another day. Love it. And not even a, a week or a month. And I just went. It made me go after every rebound that same way because every time I'm out there on the court, my mom would just yell at me, Nard, that's your house. Nard, <laughs> Nard is my nickname. My middle right. name is Bernard. Uh-huh. So she, my father was Bernard. Uh-huh. She would call me Nard. <laughs> right, right, so, right, right. Nard, you better go out there, get that rebound, stop playing. Uh-huh. Nard, that's your house. Don't let nobody get no rebounds uh-huh. and uh, uh-huh. get, shoot no shots in your house. You better go in there, block that shot, rebound the ball, and run the floor. So, I mean, <laughs> my career. is <laughs> there. It's just tied to, you know, tied to, it's tied to, you know, we always talk about motivation. We always talk about somebody instilling a constant, a constant mantra into your mindset. And if you keep hearing, I always tell people, especially with children, if children hear negative, then they will live a life of negativity. If children in your situation, they kept telling you what you could do and what you could not do. And that's what I hear. Keep keep screaming out of this conversation and screaming out in a good way, you know. And when I talk about you being more than an athlete, we got to go over to the gaming. And and I'm going to just tell you this, Nard. 
You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. You know, is that taking me back to high school? Come huh? on now, come on now. You know, black people they gonna give you a nickname. My nickname is Ricky. Okay, so uh, my nickname is Ricky. Okay, see, my, I know. You know uh, what I'm saying? You. So I gotta call I you Nard. Okay, all right, yep. Kenneth. Respect, respect, Ricky. Okay. <laughs> and so when when I look at look at in 19, I was I was co-executive producing of the Jamie Foxx show. And I was in the writer's room, and they had a game on. They had a video game on, gaming on. And they and they and they and I sat down. And I went, let me play. And, I, and then I they they handed me something. I, I want to say something because it was foreign to me. Because the guy next to me was able to flip. He was able to kick. He was to spin. He was able to blow torches. Right then, I realized I can't do this. So <laughs> I. I, the the be, ability to be able to manipulate these games and play basketball, play football, to play Fortnite. Talk about that journey of developing these talents, these skills, as a game gaming pro. Talk about it. Honestly, it's just my way of escaping from my environment. Right. I grew mm-hmm. up. I grew up in the hood. Like mm-hmm. I mean, like the typical hood story. Hey, this kid came from nothing and. Mm-hmm. He he didn't have no financial backing or real wealth, and he he still made it out. I mean, right. that's that's typically what you hear nowadays, and typically, us black people are the odds that we have to face every day. Right. So for me, it was either hey, the streets is calling you. You live right across the street. Well, right across the street from a park where a lot of murders happen, a lot of dead bodies happen. Mm-hmm. Then hey, you right there, you live right down. I mean, right upstairs from where they sell drugs at at the corner store right there. You live right upstairs from that. So, and then all these gang members, hey, you got Crips and Bloods all in your building. Right. And they all wanted you to join in. Hey, mm-hmm. represent us. Represent right. us. Hey, mm-hmm. you you part of us. We're going to protect you and make sure we got your back. Mm-hmm. And But my foundation is what kept me from going there. My mom, no, you can't go outside. My dad, Nah, that's not the that's not the environment for you. You don't need to be there. Mm-hmm. So, what is a kid to do? Okay, it's snowing, it's raining. You can't go outside <laughs> and go to the park like I usually do. Mm-hmm. I usually go to Weekway Park, mm-hmm. go go up the street where the court's at, and I'm playing there. Mm-hmm. Then I come back home. I'm dead tired. Dang shirt was white. Now it's black. Mm-hmm. But you know, <laughs> yeah, hey, you got to get it in. You got to hustle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, it's raining, it's snowing outside. What else is there to do? You can't like you don't have the ex accessibility mm-hmm. of a gym mm-hmm. because you can't afford that. You can't mm-hmm. afford to go to a gym. You can't afford to have a gym membership. Mm-hmm. So you play video games. You sit back and imagine, hey, this is a world that's outside of the my outside world can be like, or this is a world where my life can be like. So I got into playing. Back then, it wasn't Matt, and it was game day for me. Absolutely. Back then, it wasn't 2K. It was NBA Live. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I was playing NBA Live. It was playing Madden. I was, I mean, oh, excuse me, I was playing Game Day. Mm-hmm. Then I was playing Resident Evil. <laughs> I was playing, right. Uh, right. I was playing, hey, I, outside of my environment, my father and them telling me, hey, this, this game, because games didn't have no ratings back then. Right. Grand Theft, <laughs> Grand Theft Auto. Like, yes, yes. I was playing yes. that. I'm like, hey, this reminds me of where I live at. My husband. <laughs> oh, nah. Right. right. I, could, I could be the person that's doing all the negative stuff and mm-hmm. all that stuff that's not supposed to be, like, that's going to get you locked up and not on the right path. Mm-hmm. I can be this person on the game. Right. Mm-hmm. So, hey, 
I'm gonna stick to this. Right. And okay, hey, it's not just my parents make me play video games. Hey, you got to read these books and do this stuff too. So it was okay. I could read these books real quick, do all this stuff, uh, do all these words, keep learning, keep expanding my brain. Then, oh, let me go over here to these video games, cause right. I don't want to think about the outside world and what's really going on, right? And the negativity. I want to think positive and feel like I can control stuff, and that's what it does. It's a control thing. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about it when you when I look at you, first of all, I appreciate the. The humbleness, which is part of Hat Foundation's uh, narrative, being appreciative. I hear that in our interview. I hear the word thankful in that interview. You know, you you do represent that. And you represented all phases of Hat in this interview. And I think that with that being the foundation, how does your foundation work? Who are you focusing on helping with your Hat Foundation? And what's the future of Hat? Well, hopefully the future of Hat can be expanded to... Many of states. Yes, sir. Um, just it's just basically to help the youth. It's help the youth through programming and not mm-hmm. programming of of oh like hey you got to do this, listen to this, and be this type of person. No, it's programming of having fun, enjoying it, understanding that your knowledge can get you further than your athletic abilities ever can. Mm-hmm. Because hey, at the end of the day. Yeah, you can play hard and do everything possible to try to make it to that next level of the NBA or overseas, but it may not pan out for you or injury may happen. But we want to make sure that you got a scholarship and not just any scholarship, a four-year scholarship to a D1 school Mm -hmm. to get your education first because that's what we care about here. And Hat Foundation, and it is about your education right about you going to that next level of education about you graduating high school a better person not just man not just female because we have men we elite boys we have men and elite girls right mm-hmm. not just a man or a female mm-hmm. being a better overall person going out there feeling as confident as you were on the court but in the classroom or just in the dorms. Because at the end of the day, our whole objective is to get you to D1 so you can make the world a better place and have a full ride and your parents don't don't have to worry about nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. All they got to do is worry about, oh, I got a little bit of money, I can come <laughs> see you. Or, right. hey, we got a little bit of money, you could come see me. Right. And that's what my parents had to worry about. And that's what I believe the, the youth should be able to pretty much having their hands. Uh, with, the, with the proper lane, with, with the proper opportunity. And that's what HAT's all about, giving you the proper opportunity. I know that I come from an inner city, six sisters, two brothers. So I know about what you're talking about. You know, I didn't, when I grew up, I didn't have video games. You know, I just, uh, I always tell people, you know, when I, we moved to a better neighborhood, but it was the same black people. It was the same experience when I walked outside that door. It was just a little bit better. And that was just my parents' desire, just to give us a little bit better, to seek a little bit better opportunity because they saw there were opportunities out there. And when I look at your skill set, I have Rick Fox on the show, and he was talking about he owned a gaming league. He was part of a gaming league, and he owned a game team, a team. And he was just talking about the value of these teams now. I know you won in Fortnite, you won this second place. Where does the future hold for you in that whole Fortnite and that whole gaming industry? Are you going to be built part of, are you going to own a team or going to be part of a league? What does it take you, Kenneth Fareed, a.k.a. Nard? 
<laughs> well, that's what we're building right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like I said, I see the future in the youth. Yes, sir. And the Hat Foundation is kind of that. Like, I'm looking for people to help give back mm-hmm. and not just because, oh, it's Kenneth Reed's hat. Yeah, but it's not for me. I don't see a dime from it. Only mm-hmm. thing I'm doing is just giving it back to the kids. Right. I got everything I that's everything I'm about. I I, I have five kids of my own, mm-hmm. three boys, two girls. So for me is, hey, I'm building them to understand that you gotta work your tail off mm-hmm. to reach your goals. But at the same token, make little, make impact in the world. Don't just be a person who, oh make their dreams come true, all this other stuff, and be like, oh, I want to isolate myself from everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, give back. Mm-hmm. Continue mm-hmm. to build. Continue right. to be a great person. Build mm-hmm. your your name in the history books as, hey, Tyra Fareed did this. Kenzie Fareed did this. Right. Uh, the third, Kenneth, because I have a, like I said, mm-hmm. got a son, so the third, he's mm-hmm. the third. I'm the second. Right. My father's the first. Right. Mm-hmm. So, Hey, the third, like you got the name, so right. you got it. You, boy, you better, you got the brand. You, better you got sure the brand. You keep going. Keep going. So and then you know, Kina and Kyan. They, uh-huh. I want, of course, them. Yo, y'all. Just because your brother got the name, don't mean y'all can't do the same thing. Y'all boys, all y'all boys. Build your legacy. Sure y'all go. Mm-hmm. But for me, I'm more so on my girls than anything, because yo, y'all little girls. Everybody looking for y'all to be black little girls who just look for handouts and mm-hmm. marry athletes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Then oh, just have plenty of babe like baby fathers or whatever. No, mm-hmm. y'all gonna be better than this. Y'all gonna yes. be smart, mm-hmm. educated. You could go be a doctor. You could mm-hmm. go be a nurse. Mm-hmm. You could go be freaking astronaut. Mm-hmm. Anything in this world, but you're gonna be educated for sure. Mm-hmm. And then you're gonna have the, you're gonna be tall. So I'm gonna make sure you have the physical <laughs> body. To not be a little fat kid, because at the end of the day, kids nowadays just want to watch their iPad mm-hmm. and play video games because you can make money from it, a lot of money. But nah, you got to do everything. You got to play sports still, be active, mm-hmm. focus on focus on school. Of mm-hmm. course, school is first. Student athlete. Mm-hmm. That's why I tell my kids, you're a student athlete. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm building this video game stuff and. I got my kids who play video games, so mm-hmm. I'm like, hey, why don't y'all incorporate your AAU team, too? <laughs> and hopefully, you can take the whole AAU team. There you go. The, my there kids you go. and everybody. I'm like, hey, you got a man and we league gaming now. There you go. I love it, man. <laughs> hey, Kenneth, man, uh, talking to Kenneth Fareed, man. My, uh, he's the second. His son's the third. He's building a legacy. He's building a foundation for us. You know, we all need him. We all need a Kenneth in our life. And right now, he shared his story on Money Making Conversation. Kenneth, thank you for coming on Money Making Conversation, sir. Thank you for having me, man. This is a great conversation. I, I love talking to you, man. You, 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 you can take a good joke, man. You can be teased, man. You, you understand who you are, man. You really are humble, man. And you are appreciative and you are thankful. Thank you for yeah. coming on the show talking about the Half Foundation, man. And uh, you, you, you won't lose me as a friend. I'm going I'm to I'm 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 put me in that friend docket that you have out there. Uh, of course, of course. You're Ricky. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you for coming on Money Making Conversation. No, my already, man. Already. Love it. Love it. We will be right back with more Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Jermaine Dupri is a hit maker 
songwriter, rapper, entrepreneur, record executive, DJ, and we're always having an opinion about music. But we discussed making mailbox money during the pandemic. COVID hit and that's where the attention went. It went straight to my mailbox. That's what I am. I'm a songwriter that's written songs that goes to the mailbox and picks up <laughs> that, that, that that mailbox check every month or every whatever it comes. You know, you mm-hmm. don't know, you know, I, you don't know how frequent it is, but if you write enough records and you write mm-hmm. enough hit records, that check is definitely there. And it's mm-hmm. another one that comes right after that. And it's another one that comes right after that. And mm-hmm. I think for the first time in my career, this is the first time that I actually paid attention to that because I always was getting money so many multiple places. If you want to hear this full interview with Jermaine Dupree, visit MoneyMakingConversations.com. Keep winning. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. My next guest is Chef Q. Chef Q is a veteran that served eight years in the Navy. He is a great example of perseverance and not giving up on your dreams. He opened Q 1227, which is his month and date of his birthday, that's a restaurant in December 2019, and had to close four months later due to the pandemic. Chef Q made adjustments and created a to-go orders and a family menu, menu which became a big help for parents working home remotely. He also had working at home, working remotely at home. Let me say it like that. He has received exceptional reviews for his great tasting food and service from President Bill Clinton, TV radio host my boy Steve Harvey, singer-songwriter Sean Mendez, love his music, actor Danny Glover, comedian George Lopez, NBA player Chris Paul, Houston Astros manager Dusty Baker, and a host of others. They have all enjoyed the delectable meals of Chef Q. Let's find out why. Please welcome to Money Making Conversations, my man, Chef Q. How you doing, sir? I'm doing good, man. Thank you for the invite. This is awesome. Well, first of all, I had to, no, I had to just lay out the, the, the food carpet. I like to say the food. Let everybody know who I'm talking to. You know what I'm saying? So tell us about, you know, you know because I read your bio, is that you, you're a self-taught chef. You know, you... Yes, you I am. Do- I started washing dishes and... um Kept working my way up the ladder, um, not being, you know, given that red carpet treatment, kind of had to do what you had to do and, uh, you know, keep keep working hard, head down, work hard. Now, my mom taught me. Now, you know, when, when I hear that term, you know, just, you know, started washing dishes now, you, okay, I'm going to tell you my little funny story. And I remember I was seven, okay. 16 years old, I worked at Burger King. They hired me to do the hamburgers. You know, all I do, but I didn't like that job. I worked my way up to the cash register. Every time, <laughs> the manager would come and go, why are you not making burgers? Well, because I wanted to work the cash register. So, but, but, so eventually, he let me stay at the cash register. Now, you started washing dishes. How did you start, you know, being invited over to, you know, make food or participate in setting the food up in a sous chef? How did that work? Well, it, it started in the prep room, right? Because the guys would go out on their smoke breaks and they needed, you know, somebody to watch their station. Right. So I volunteered and I just picked up a knife one day and the chef at the time walked by, saw me with a knife and said, hey, hey, let me show you how to hold that knife. Oh, okay. So it started there. Well, you know, the interesting you say that because, man, you know, we, we can assume... Because, you know, we watch TV all the time, food networks and video. Yeah. They said the most watched videos on social media are food videos. That knife and how you use it. First of all, you should have a sharp knife. You know, don't yes. try. Yeah. <laughs> you won't be frustrated. <laughs> try to do something with a dull knife. Talk about that because <laughs> we all know that, you know, you have steak knives. You have, you know, when I say steak knives, you have knives that you have with your kitchen and with your fork and that. Talk about the whole process of things that we take for granted, <laughs> Chef Q. 
that should not be taken for granted, especially a sharp knife in your kitchen when you're trying to prepare food. You know, that, that's a great point because I, I learned at a young, 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 young in the culinary career that there's a right tool for the right job. So you have to understand that and able to use the tool that's supposed to be for the job. Mm-hmm. And it really is going to make your job a little less cumbersome. Um, sharp knives is important. I sharpen my knives all the time. So it's little things like that that will help you, you know, do the task more efficiently. Because I see, you know, when I'm watching the pros, whether it's Bobby Flay or uh, on, on TV or any of the, uh, the prominent chefs that come on these foods, or watch the, uh, the, uh, the uh, ch- or Chops shows. When they start chopping that, those knives coming in slant, those are sharp knives that they're using to really, really <laughs> chop, the, especially when you do it with veggies, chopping them real quick and all those things. And so, so that was your first lesson. Somebody saw you over there just handling a knife real long. When did right. you start moving in and saying, this is what I want to do? Because, you know, we always have different dreams and different aspirations. But when does, when does it become a, a reality to you that this is something that you could do and you wanted to do? Well, when that same chef had a little faith in me, he looked at me and he said, hey, you, you, you're pretty good at this. This could be a career if you want it to be. Um, because in my mind, I was just working my way to get a little extra money, working my way through college. Um, and it, when he told me that, it kind of dawned on me. And then I started doing a little bit of research and asking more questions and, you know, writing down more things that he would say and kind of getting serious about it and saying that it's more than just flipping burgers because... That was the, the misnomer to me. To be a cook means I got to flip burgers or I got to, you know, fry chicken for the rest of my life. Right. So that was a misnomer for me. So when I learned out that there was so much more to do in this career called culinary arts, then I got more interested in it. Yeah, because you can't be, um, like I said, you can't be stereotyped about what a chef yes. does, you know. Yes. And there's nothing Indeed. negative. You have a chef. Like I go to, I love Waffle House. You have a chef there, call out the ticket numbers, he remember everything, he make your food. Then you go to right. a high-end restaurant, or you can go to other restaurants where you can have different titles for different things. So that's that's a respect. And also, I always tell people on my show is that if you're going to go into a field, learn what you're going into. And that's what you had to do because you had these stereotypes of what a chef was that were totally incorrect. Right. You, you know, and another thing, I, I think I want to add on to that because I think that we have a talent, but I think we have to have a knowledge of what we go into. Right. And I think that's two totally different things. Um, you know, so that chef saw in me a talent that I could do this for a profession, but I had to learn the knowledge of what it meant to do what he was asking me to do. So I think that's two totally different things. And if we can understand that, um, and then I want you know, Again, it was a long, long road. I don't want anyone to think it was easy. Um, I got turned down many jobs. <laughs> I got told no a lot, um, but I just kept at it. I kept at it. I kept at it. And then, um, you know, sooner or later you get that break, but you got to be ready for that break. You got to be able to perform and you got to be ready to, um, you know, you got to show up on time. That's the little things, right? Right. You got to do what you do, what they ask you to do. That, those are the little things. So work the shifts that no one else wants to work. That was all me. Um, long hours. First one there, last one to leave. That was all me. But I wanted to prove and I, to myself first and then to those around me that I could do this. Well, that's that's absolutely true. When you call, when, because being a chef or being a cook, you know, usually you're the only one. 
In other words, if you have a normal job and you're in administration or you're a secretary, you don't come to work or or you're a salesman, then they can slide somebody in that can cover for you. If mm-hmm. you are the chef, <laughs> there is no covering, right, Chef Q? Right, right, right. When I take a day off, we close the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 now, now, let, let me, but, but hey, we're working on that though. We're working on that. I got a great team that we're right. training, and we're working on that. But you know, but but you you want to give away all your secrets either, do you? You know, people can take your secrets and go someplace else with it, right? Well, hey, so here's my thing on that. If if they take it from me, then I just create more. Okay. So I'm I'm not really you know hot up, caught up on that. There's a recipe book. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything we do in the restaurant, there's a recipe book. Mm-hmm. So all the cooks and all the you know people that work there. If they want to grab a page and steal it, so be it. You know, I think that, you know, that just leaves me more room to create more. So, you know, I'm not caught up on, oh, it's mine. It's the secret. Because you know what? I'm standing on the shoulders of someone. Right. You know, my mom, my grandmother, my aunties, you know, I'm standing on the shoulder of those TV shows that I watch as well. Mm -hmm. I'm standing on the shoulder of those books that I read when when I was coming through the ranks. So if someone wants to stand on my shoulders, so be it. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because when I was doing stand-up comedy, you know, there's always a fear of somebody stealing your joke, you know, and I, I would hear comments, man, somebody walking, oh, he'll steal your joke, he'll steal your joke. And I was I was like you. I say, you know, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm this is all the jokes I'm going to write in my life. Right, and right. so I'm a 100% guy. I would always go up and give my best. And that's what you're saying there. You're not going to limit yourself because you fear, uh, fear the the, something you can't control. Because you can't control somebody right. coming in and figure out your recipe and take it someplace else. If that's all, if you only got one hamburger in your life, then you got a problem. <laughs> I don't think you're one hamburger man, Chef Q. <laughs> right, right, right. And then, you know, it just leaves you room to create. I, and, you know, that's the thing about food. It's ever-changing. It's forever changing. And the, the um, melting part of food is endless. So it really is about the create, creative mind of the chef. So I don't get caught up on all of that, you know, and, you know, I'm asked a lot of times, you know, by younger chefs or younger cooks coming up through the ranks um, about helping them and all that. And I'm really, really game because I I wanted somebody to do that to me, especially as a black chef coming up. Right. I wanted to see me at those executive chef positions and I didn't. So I'm really, really, really uh, mindful about, you know, you know, talking to the younger chefs or younger cooks especially of color. You know, you're based in a suburb right outside of Sacramento, California. And now, like you said, early on in your life, you got a taste for the culinary uh, flair. Uh, now, then you spent eight years in the Navy. Was that was that after you started cooking or you had sampled a little, little cooking training? And then you went that, was to be- that was before. My military career was before I started cooking. Okay. Um, but um, when I got out of the military is when, you know, I kind of got a little training in the military, if you will, because when I changed over my jobs in the military, they sent me to what we call the galley. Right. And they made me cook a little bit there. Um, and again, there was no intention of me to be becoming a chef or work in this industry. <laughs> but when I got out of the military and I needed a job, I knew I could wash dishes. Mm-hmm. I knew that. Mm-hmm. So that's where it started. And then um, just. I don't know, the hand of God, the a few breaks here and there, and, um, you know, here we are. Well, I, I think that uh, it, it takes a certain amount of perseverance, a certain degree, a whole lot of humbleness to say, hey, and I always tell people, sometimes you have to 
you know, it's not about the money, it's about the opportunity. That's how I saw when you talk about washing dishes. You know, you saw an opportunity, and that opportunity yeah. led to the conversation we're having on my show, Money Making Conversation. I'm speaking with Chef Q, he uh, opened a restaurant, 1227. That's the month and date of his birthday outside a small suburb in uh, Sacramento, California area in 2018. And then you, everything's feeling good. <laughs> now, now walk us through the steps this is step of 2020 where you starting to see it go bad but you're not admitting that this could really happen not now God come on now God you can't do me like this right right so you know it's everything we did at the inception of the restaurant was intentional we intentionally opened December the 27th like you said on my birthday uh-huh. because in the restaurant industry I know that that is a slow season of restaurants. It's holiday season, New Year's resolution. Nobody's coming out to eat. So in <laughs> no. my mind, that gives me that gives me time to get my legs under us, get our staff together and make sure we get things right outside the public eye. Mm-hmm. So it was very intentional. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then, you know, um, <laughs> but the pandemic wasn't intentional though. Okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't think I don't, I wasn't ready for it. I don't think nobody was ready for it, mm-hmm. but I sat down with my wife um, who is my general manager. Right. And I said, well, it's not only hit us or affected us, it's affected everyone. So how are we going to come through with it? And we did, we looked at other restaurants and we saw what they were doing. That just didn't work for us because we were so new. Nobody knew who we were. So the DoorDash and the Grubhub and all of that stuff, it didn't work for us. Mm. So we created, yeah, we downsized our menu, created a family style menu for, you know, for the family that was around us. And we, you know, we put it on our social media. But on top of that, we started feeding the frontline health workers in the hospitals. We started giving them box lunches and, you know, sharing the love with them and saying thank you. Mm. Um, and that started becoming, I don't know, a buzz in the hospitals. Mm. And then people started ordering our family meals. And they started enjoying our family meals. Mm. And then it just kept escalating and going from there. And, um, you know, from that, when, they was able, when we were able to open outside, people just kept coming and kept coming. And, you know, then, you know, we were fortunate enough to be you know, supported by the black community. And then, so they started supporting us. Um, And it just ballooned to, you know, a really, really busy, busy restaurant, which I'm very grateful for. Well, tell us what exactly is a family meal, Chef Q? You've said it several times and that that I just think about, when I hear the word family and a meal, I hear large portions. Is it two meats and a meat and two veggies, a meat and two veggies and a bread? What is a family meal? So, so in, in my mind, what I wanted to do is create something to where all the family had to do was just go home, open the box, put it on the table and have a, a dinner meal, have a family meal with their kids and all that stuff. Because, you know, remember, kids wasn't, kids were at home, schools in at home and mm-hmm. parents just didn't have time. Mm-hmm. So we created this menu to where they could choose, you know, one or two uh, of uh, proteins, whether it's rotisserie chicken, fried chicken, um, meatloaf. Um, they, we had a seafood platter. We had all of this stuff on there. And then they could choose potatoes, rice, collard greens, mac and cheese. So they kind of pieced together their own little meal. And we just put it together in a box and 
had it ready for them when they came. I'm telling you something, man. Good. What you just said is a family meal. Mac and cheese, potatoes, <laughs> right? Come on now. That, that's, that's food again. That's what you call hearty meals. And <laughs> <laughs> also, and, you know, just a light seasoned if you want to put a little salt and pepper on it, you know, and all yeah. those things. So it didn't take no, it, you know, who like they, like they say, what kid don't like mac and cheese? So you went in there. But every, every kid. But but you know every something, kid. Chef Q? Everybody can't do mac and cheese right, though. You know that, though. Everybody can. Everybody can. <laughs> but I'm from the South. Don't forget that. I'm from the South. <laughs> you, so, because because I always talk about food. You now, you, now you're coming down to my area when you say from the South. I'm born in Houston, Texas. Right okay. now, my, 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 my headquarters is in Atlanta, Georgia. I come from a big family. Not as big as you. I come from six sisters, two brothers. Okay. And uh, okay. you come from a, a youngest of 17. And so I'm the middle child, I'm, you know, I'm four, four above me, four below me, you know. So so they said I was treated special because I was in the middle, but I don't believe that, Chef Q. I don't believe that. So so what about in the South did you, uh, did you venture, my friend? Man, I'm from a small town called Cross City, Florida, outside of Gainesville. I know exactly um, where And I'm the youngest, so, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't want to say I was treated fair, uh, uh, with special treatment. I was bullied by my brothers, man. They, they, <laughs> <laughs> they took me through. <laughs> I, I know the feeling, you know, because, you know, you're hey. the youngest. Because they always yeah. said, you know, they didn't have what you get. You know what I'm saying? No, the food not was at better. All. Not at all. The clothes um, was my better. Mom, my, my mom kept me close. So that's why I, <laughs> you know, I got to learn the secret recipes because she kept me close. Absolutely. You know, it's really interesting, man, when we talk about that that chef world, you know, like, I, you know, I didn't really start. I was like you. I, I used to watch my mom. But my mom was a traditionalist. She wouldn't let me come in the kitchen. My dad, no boy, come over here. Let them, let them girls. They supposed to be in the kitchen. No, that's a mentality back then. So I never, yes. wa- I could only watch. And so when I got in college, I should always remember what she did, and I kind of like put it together. And then, and then, so I always a, was a natural cook. You know, I I can go in the I can go in the uh, kitchen and just start putting stuff together. You know, and things like that. So I get the impression that you are just a natural person with the culinary experience of watching your mom and being there, which has led to you have a year over 25 years because you self-taught, like I said earlier. Of that yes. process, what surprises the people the most about you, your skills, when you say tell them you're self-taught? I, I think it's the flavor compound that we put together. We have bold flavors, um, and then we have some unique flavors. Um, being from the South and then, you know, I'm not afraid to try different things. Um, you know, back in that day, you know, and I'm like you, a big family, but right. you know, my mom, I didn't have a father in the home tell me to stay out of the kitchen. Right. So that my mom, she was like, well, come in here, boy, just sit down over there in that corner mm-hmm. to keep me out of trouble type thing. Right. Or <laughs> to keep my brothers from jumping on me or whatever, you know. Um, so it was more of that. Right. Um, but, um, you know, so, so you start asking questions for mom and, you know, it wasn't like she wrote everything down or she explained everything to the T. She gave her best knowledge of what she was doing, but it really was like by taste or by sight. And I don't know, I, don't, I can count on, on my hands how many times I saw mom use measuring cups or spoons and things like that. It was all tasting it, you know? Isn't so, that crazy? You know, I, I know. I, I deal with that, man. I, I, I Just watching your parents, just, just throw it in there. Just throw yes. it in there, dude. Just throw it in there. Yeah, just throw it in there. So, you know, you, you, you fast forward and then, um, you know, so now I'm in, in my career and I had the pleasure to travel the world mm-hmm. through the military. Mm-hmm. I traveled the world. 
and I've tasted some great foods in foreign countries. So now I come back to California and I'm really serious about this culinary thing. So um, I, I reach back to the South, my roots in the South, and then I reach all the way, you know, to the, my international travels. And I started playing with all of these different ingredients, if you will. Um, and then I'm here in California, which is a farm to fresh capita. So I got fresh produce and fresh products at my disposal. So it really is like, let's just try this and see how it works. Or this tastes great. Or this sounds good together. Let's, let's just play. And it really has been that for me and for my career. And I'm not afraid to fail. I'm not afraid to try a dish and, oh, that didn't work. Scratch that. Um, so I'm not afraid that at, that at all or changing it up a little bit. Because, you know, um, in the South, we cooked a lot of things. Or my, my, my mom and them, they cooked a lot of things that wasn't exactly healthy for us. So can I take those ingredients or that, that way, change it up just a little bit to make it a little bit more healthy for, for our lives today? So I, I'm challenged with all that, but I take those challenges head on. And, and you know, to me, it's, it's our culinary industry is ever-changing. It's forever, like, just transforming. Um, it's, that's the growth in our culinary industry for me is I want to stay true to the roots, right? where the food comes from, but I want to make it, I want to modernize it. Thus, we kind of call our restaurant Modern Comfort Food. Absolutely. Uh, Q1227, uh, located right outside of Sacramento, California. I'm talking to Chef Q. Chef, tell us about this restaurant. Tell us what, what inspired you to open the restaurant first, and then let's go to the menu and some of the discussion of what's on that menu and what really pops out from you. Because everybody knows there's certain things on the menu customers just ask for. They go, I got to right. have this. Right. Chef, this is my favorite. This is my favorite. But then the right. only, but, but you keep your whole menu because you got to have variety and different people like different things. So talk about what yeah. inspired you. I, I've told everybody why, why this name Q1227, but what inspired the concept of a modern comfort food restaurant? Well, first of all, what inspired me was I was... Um, I was at my wit's end working in other high-end restaurants. Um, all my life, I worked in pretty, you know, white tablecloth restaurants, if you will. And um, it just got to a point to where, you know, I'm giving them, you know, 14, 15, 16 hours a day, six, seven days a week, and just feeling really unappreciated. And, that, you know, a lot of people get to that point. But when I got to that point, I was like, okay, it's really time for me. Either it's now or never. Um, I got to do this. Um, and we looked for a building. We looked all over the place. And when we found our current location, it really was, this fits what I want to do. And then we created, because, you know, we talked earlier about chefs get stereotyped. I didn't want to be called a soul food chef. I didn't want to be called even a black chef, if you will. Right. I just want to be a great chef. Mm -hmm. um, so we found our building. And then what we did was we, looked around at all the other restaurants around us. And we said, well, nobody's doing food like this. Now, so then that's when we created the menu. And then that's when I said, okay, if I pull a little bit of the South and a little bit of this farm right. freshness, oh, my travels to Japan, let me pull that in here and let me, let me do this and let me marry these two together. So the, the restaurant, the, the, the menu, I should say, just evolved around what wasn't in the area. And from my travels and from my experiences and from my childhood. So the menu just kept evolving until what it is now. And, and some of the favorites, ideally, is like the lobster bites. Like, 
I did fried lobster years ago when I was a caterer, and I had this one client. He's a former Major League Baseball player. He's a really good friend of mine. Um, and um, when I op- when he heard I was going to open a restaurant, he goes, "And you got to put those lobster things on there." <laughs> I said, "No way!" Uh-huh. I, I, you know, I was like, "No." First of all, lobster is super expensive, uh-huh. um, and I don't know if I could, you know, execute it right. It's 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 more. We can have a great thing in mind to put on the rest on the on a menu, but we got to be able to execute it. There's nothing like having something great, but you can't execute it and get it to the table to the guests. So mm-hmm. that's that's horrible. So mm-hmm. I was like, nah, I can't execute it. I can't put them on. So then I had to figure out a way because he kept at me. So those lobster <laughs> bites are probably on 99% of our tables when guests come in. They got to have them. Other favorites, um, as my wife likes to say, the meatloaf. We bacon wrap our meatloaf, but she calls it a grown man meatloaf because <laughs> it's really nice and hearty. And it comes with our mashed potatoes, um, and some mushroom gravy. It's really nice and hearty. It's really a good meatloaf. Is, it, is there a brown gravy or tomato-based <laughs> gravy that you use there for the for your meatloaf? Is it a brown gravy or tomato-based gravy? Tomato-based gravy. Woo! Is it a little sweet? You got a little sweetness in it? No, man, no. It got a little spice in it. Oh, okay, okay. You know exactly what I was talking about. A lot of people, they, they put their little sugar in it, give it a little no. sweet. Okay. No. I like oh, that. You know, I, I took the sugar out, trying to keep it a little bit on the healthy end. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, you know, the, you, you said something earlier about not wanting to be recognized. There's two things that I always hear when I talk to African-American or black chefs. The word soul food, which I still don't know what that means, because I can go to the restaurant and see the right. same same menu, and I don't see the word soul tied to it. And then it's being discriminated because you're black, because they just say you can only do a certain type of uh, menu. So talk about that experience because you mentioned it a little bit, and I want to let people know that I don't care how talented you are. Sometimes it all comes down to the color of your skin. You know what people think about you and how they can stereotype you. And what exactly is soul food, Chef Q? You know, you know what? That's that's a great point because you know I have been stereotyped. Um, I have been stereotyped, and um, you know it's not fun. It's not fun at all to be stereotyped. Um, Hold on, one minute. Hold, hold on. on. Hold, hold. Yeah. What's Samantha talking about? Muting your screen. What's that? It's, it's somebody is speaking. I don't know who it is. It's iPad 2 or whoever that is on iPad. We just need you to mute. Who's iPad 2? I, I thought it was uh, one of a, a rep of Mr. Chef Q. No. So who? I don't know. We good here. Oh, we'll, we'll check that out. Though. Let's go back to the they, only person I heard talking was you, Samantha. So I want to let you know that. Uh, you know what I heard talking, but thank you. Let's talk about that whole discrimination thing that we deal with. I dealt with it as a writer in Hollywood. You know, I, I, I did sitcoms like, you know, uh, Sister Sister, Jamie Foxx, The Parkers, but they always said that, okay, that's a black sitcom. I could. They would never consider me for the Seinfelds or the home improvements and things like that. And it always annoyed me because we were doing the same thing and I had the same creative skills. Same thing happens in the restaurant business, especially when you're a chef. You know, the word soul, like I said, I kid you not, I'm a foodie. I go to different restaurants and I go, isn't this what they call soul food over here? But they go to a black restaurant, they're just pigeonholed. And sometimes we do overindulge with the Lord with the sugar at these quote-unquote soul food restaurants. But you're doing right. modern comfort food, and so you shouldn't yeah. be pigeonholed like that. Talk about that being a black chef. Especially opening up, we were pigeonholed, and we were we were stereotyped, right? Because 
a lot of my counterparts in the industry, you know, um, you know, they, they did say that. Right. And I, you have to fight, you know, from being offended by it. Right. So I just wanted to prove them wrong. And, and I'll be 100 percent transparent with you. It really angered me to to kind of go there. Like. I'm a chef. I'm not I'm not not you. I mean, I, there's nothing I can do about being black. Right. So that, that's who I am. Mm-hmm. But I'm a chef and I'm, a, I'm in this industry and I'm doing what you're doing. So either you're going to recognize me as your peer or just don't recognize me at all. Um, I've been called racial names. I've been I've been stereotyped in the industry. I've been given shifts that the white chefs don't want right. because I'm the black. Now, I've been in management my entire life, but they've been high end restaurants. Now, and I'll tell you something else. I've been I've interviewed for jobs that. I've not gotten because I'm going to use the word color of my skin. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would, I would interview for executive chef job. Mm-hmm. They would say, well, we want to hire you for a sous chef. And I would like be wide. The guy that you're, you know, eventually <laughs> looking at is less experienced than I am. Um, not only would they want to hire me for lesser position, but give me less money right. than what the average is. Mm-hmm. One of the corporate chefs said, well, I didn't think you had what it took. So it's that sort of um, racism that I've had to counterpart in my career, um, and it's sometimes it's, it's sometimes it's blatant, and it's in your face. Other times right. it's subtle. Um, but all in all, man, my end game was I'm here to learn. I'm here to um, gather information, mm-hmm. and I'm here to better my career. So it's not about you, mm-hmm. and it's not about the race the racism that you that you you know you put out. So when we opened our own restaurant, yeah, we were labeled all of that, man. And I couldn't let it get to me. Um, I, I just had to, you know, stay with it all through the pandemic, all through all of that. Um, we were labeled because we're in a predominantly white area. I think it's probably about 95, 96 percent mm-hmm. white out here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but it was both ways. Right. We had some black patrons wonder why we was out here right. and why we wasn't, you know, why we wasn't in the hood. Right. Right. You know, so it worked both ways. Um, and it, to me, that's all educational, right? Mm-hmm. It's a time for me to educate both races. Right. So when you walk into Q1227, it really is about love. Mm-hmm. It's about love. It's about diversity. It's not about the color of your skin. It's not about your political background. It's really about love and diversity. We want to love on you. We want to love on you. That's our thing. So, yeah. Well, I love this interview, man. I, I really appreciate you, Chef Q. Well, really, man, I, I like I said, Dusty Baker, that's my boy. You know, we order his wine. My wife loves his wine. He gets it out of California. So, uh, yeah, a lot of names. Chris Paul, that's my boy. So, there's a lot of names. Steve yeah. Harvey, that's, you know, come on now. That's, yeah. I, I used know to him cater his TV show there in Hollywood, man. Come on now. So, he, I, I really he, understand he, what's going on, man, with you and your brand. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come on Money Making Conversation and tell your story. It was an outstanding story to Man, thank you for the invite, man. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you in the restaurant one of these days when you're up in this area. Oh, you will. Yo, I'm going to come by. I'm going to bring some of my friends, too. And I, I'm going to just tell you, this I am, Chef Q. I pay. I don't ask for no. I ask, I'll pay every time because that's part of the whole process of being an entrepreneur. Can't win if everybody coming in chopping for free, okay? So I'm going to pay. <laughs> I, I got you, by. man. I appreciate you so much. I love you, man. Stay strong. And I Thanks, enjoyed man. the yes, interview, sir. man. Yes, sir. I thank really you very did. much. Thank you. If you want to hear or see any of my interviews on Money Making Conversations, please go to moneymakingconversation.com. I'm Rashawn McDonald. I am your host. Please remember, 
always lead with your gifts. And don't let your age, friends, family, or coworkers stop you from planning or living your dreams. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Patti LaBelle is an award-winning singer and actress who has been called the godmother of soul. She started her career in the 60s and is still on top of her game as an entertainer and businesswoman. So when Patti LaBelle speaks, you should listen. I've noticed since I've been performing for 56 years, I've touched so many people just when I hug them or when I smile or say something positive to them. It don't cost you nothing to be a lifter of people. It's natural for me. I was born with this. I'm a total giver. It don't cost me nothing to give what God has given me. So I give it and with a smile on my face. And uh, as I said, I'm 76. Whenever I go on stage, I get this great feeling from the audience that they're pleased to be with me that night. And I'm going to give them something special. If you want to hear this full interview with Patti LaBelle, visit MoneyMakerConversation.com. Keep winning. 